In this episode, Wayne Jett and I continue our discussion on his book, The Fruits of Graft, and we pick up about 1944, Brenton Woods Agreement, World War II, and we talk up to about 1980, Paul Volcker and the uh, runaway interest rates and inflation. We had fun. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Banking with Live podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And we have our friend Wayne Jett and, um, and here with us today. And we're continuing the discussion of uh, really economic history going pre prior to his book, The, the Fruits of Graph, The Great Depression's In and Now. So we started really prior to the Depression. We've gone right through the Depression, which his book does a beautiful job detailing. And um, you can purchase his book in the show notes below and, and go into his website. And you should get a copy of yourself. This, these videos, and, and Wayne has done a lot of interviews on the internet over the last several years, and none of them are a replacement to purchase and read his book, okay? So today, we're just going to continue, and I think we're right up to about World War II in the, into the 40s. Um, so let's just pick it up from there, Wayne, if you don't mind. Thanks for having me again this morning, James. And I might say uh, on your remarks there, one of the things we have not been able to talk about, uh, chapter seven in my book, The Fruits of Graft, is called Understanding Franklin. And it is, I think, uh, uh, I humbly suggest, to my knowledge, it is the uh, uh, most accurate and telling uh, portrait personal portrait of Franklin Roosevelt uh, and his family life, his personal life, his personal values, his personal conduct, uh, what was important to him and what's not. I think that's the best portrait of him uh, you're going to find anywhere. Uh, and uh, also about the uh, Roosevelt family and so forth. In any event, uh, I'll leave it at that and uh, we'll uh, proceed on into uh, in effect, the uh, the Bretton Woods Agreement, 1944, the war was still certainly ongoing. This was a time in which D-Day uh, largely was still ahead of the major invasion uh, of uh, Western Europe uh, by U.S. troops, and uh, certainly a, a very a uh, difficult, devastating time in many respects, uh, but one that uh, led to an end of the war. But um, 1944, there was a uh, monetary conference uh, at Bretton Woods in the uh, United States. It resulted in an agreement uh, between the uh, Western governments as to what the monetary system uh, would look like uh, from that time forward. And it was a, uh, an approach toward uh, how to value the dollar, uh, how to operate the dollar as the world's currency for these trading nations. And uh, it was um, fairly straightforward from that standpoint, that is, uh, the dollar would continue to be valued at $35 an ounce of gold. But uh, the important aspect of that, particularly from the American standpoint, is that uh, as of 1933, 
uh, one of the first uh, orders of Franklin Roosevelt when he took office uh, was to order that Americans deliver their gold to the U.S. Treasury for $35 an ounce. Uh, it was no longer legal for Americans to have gold. So his first act was to strip the essential mechanism of the gold standard from Americans, uh, not from the rest of the world, uh, but from Americans. Uh, but let's look at the rest of the world in terms of uh, how that uh, uh, monetary system operated as soon as Roosevelt made that executive order. Um, what it provided was that the U.S. Treasury would continue to sell gold out of its stockpile to foreign central banks at $35 an ounce. Now, who are the foreign central banks? The foreign central banks are the same private type of banks that the Federal Reserve is uh, these days to the uh, complete surprise of many Americans. That is, it's not an, a government, they're not government agencies, they are private banks, primarily owned and controlled by the Rothschild family and their financial cabal allies. Uh, so the circumstance under Bretton Woods was, was not at all the kind of uh, uh, wonderful nirvana that it's presented these days. There's even been uh, recent discussions and writings and proposals that, boy, wouldn't it be great if we could go back to Bretton Woods? Uh, well, uh, Bretton Woods was nothing except uh, a system that uh, served the central banks in such a way as to uh, get the gold into their possession where they best controlled it. Uh, they could get it into other central banks of Europe uh, out of the United States, uh, even though that gold was purchased during the 30s um, off the backs of working Americans, out of the economy of working Americans, making them absolutely dirt poor and working for wages uh, five cents on the dollar or less. Uh, and uh, it was that kind of circumstance that Bretton Woods from 1944 and then after the war, it allowed the gold that had been bought uh, during the first eight years of Franklin Roosevelt's administration, during the deepest years of the Great Depression with starving millions of Americans to death, uh, they used the money, uh, sucked it out of the U.S. economy, and used it to buy gold on open markets, as much as $42 an ounce paying for it on the open uh, markets, foreign exchange, and uh, stored that. And then uh, during the years from 1944 to basically 1971, that gold was then sold back to other Rothschild banks at a continuing basis of $35 an ounce during that entire period. Now, of course, by a process of uh, gradual attrition, there was inflation from the time of 1944 
all the way to 71. And so really, the farther we got into that time period, uh, the better bargain it was, we'll say, for the Rothschild banks <laughs> to buy uh, gold from the U.S. at $35 an ounce. Sure. Uh, so um, it should have been absolutely no surprise that in 71, when, uh, when Nixon announced August 15th of 71, that the gold window was closed and then uh, later announced that uh, the dollar's value uh, in gold would be floated on the open markets, uh, that uh, within about 18 months, that uh, gold price of $35 an ounce had basically tripled uh, three times, four times as much. And it kept on rising uh, all the way through uh, the 70s. Now, um, you can see that uh, those Rothschild banks who knew very well the schedule and knew what was very well in mind uh, and knew what would uh, be pressed upon Nixon to do by none other than uh, Paul Volcker, uh, who at that time in 1971 uh, was uh, Undersecretary of the Treasury in charge of monetary policy, but he had come directly from uh, Chase Manhattan Bank, uh, the, Rothschild, uh, the Rockefeller Bank, so-called, but uh, also a Rothschild Bank. Uh, and so you can see the hands that were uh, making the pudding uh, all through that uh, circumstance. And so uh, I, I'd certainly want to make the point that the Bretton Woods affair was uh, not at all good for Americans. Uh, it uh, was good for, uh, it was a, a giant step forward in the process of the Rothschild banks of getting to the point of having complete control of the monetary system in the United States, getting it away from the gold standard and getting the gold back in their hands. Uh, with Americans holding only paper. Uh, and uh, that paper then getting to the point, uh, we can go into it a little later as to what happened after uh, the announcement from uh, uh, Nixon, August 15th of 71, about uh, closing the gold window uh, to yeah. foreign central banks. And let's get into that in a few minutes. Let me say, Wayne, that if you step back and consider what you're saying, um, I wonder how many listeners have ever really heard the other side of Britain, the Britain Woods Agreement and what really went on. And if we even back up to World War One, you cannot fight or have or sustain a world war without a central bank. Can't be done. World Wars did, didn't even exist prior to central banks. So if we look at the 1913 when the Federal Reserve was created, which is a central bank, not a governmental entity, as you mentioned, um, they have no reserves. You know, they're, they're a cartel. Um, but within six months of 1913, the creation of the Federal Reserve, World War I begins. And if the Rothschilds and the cabal that exists and has existed for centuries, um, very profitable in World War I. We go through World War I, 
and we go through World War II, which the the cabal is financing both sides of each war, and um, they're very profitable in World War One. They're very profitable in World War Two. But in between there, the which your book details in great detail, the Great Depression and how. FDR sterilized the gold, took it out of the economy at the expense of the all-American individual. And then here comes Brenton Woods' agreement, and then they're transferring that gold out of the U.S. I mean, if you really consider that narrative, um, it's worse than we thought, and they're more evil than we can imagine, my opinion. Yes. So. And, uh, and when we got to the point of closing the gold window in 71, uh, we basically had uh, more or less a little bit more gold left than we had before uh, Roosevelt started buying it. Uh, so all that he accumulated uh, out of the mouths and uh, off the backs of Americans during the uh, starving days of the Great Depression uh, basically had been sold back to the Rothschilds uh, at $35 an ounce, no profit for the United States. In fact, uh, in some respects, we paid more for the gold than we were selling it back to them for. Uh, so uh, it was a uh, an outrageous circumstance in looking at it uh, over those uh, uh, in, in that perspective. Now, in that regard, before uh, getting on to 71, let's talk about uh, what was an important book that came out uh, during that period of time. Uh, 1963, A Monetary History of the United States, 1867 uh, to 1960, uh, was written by Dr. Milton Friedman and Dr. Anna Schwartz. It was a book that was uh, sponsored by the National Bureau of Economic Research, uh, which was an organization that, uh, in my estimation, uh, could be regarded as uh, uh, an institutional type of thing that was largely controlled by the powers that be. And uh, uh, I didn't necessarily regard it that way because uh, it was the book that Milton Friedman, uh, he was put on the map by that book, became a very important figure. And frankly, uh, he became a, uh, uh, an economist that many people look to, including myself. Uh, he had uh, ideas that seemed to make sense, that ran against the grain of the Keynesians. Uh, he espoused smaller government, lower taxes, um, you know, simplicity and a system uh, of uh, controlling the value of the money uh, and making sure it stayed stable. It seemed to be uh, a good thing to him that it stayed stable. He wasn't one who uh, was uh, saying like the Keynesians were that it's, uh, you really need to have money with some level of inflation in order for the government, uh, for the, infl for the uh, economy to do well. Well, um, in doing the research in my book, when I, I got, I gave a closer look to that book, uh, all of a sudden I started noticing things that made me uncomfortable with it. Uh, one is uh, just in the subtitle of the book itself, 
a monetary history of the United States from 1867. Now, why did they pick that cutoff date to go back? Well, the obvious thing would be that if they had uh, included only a couple of more years, uh, uh, five more years uh, previously, they would have found the greenbacks uh, used by Franklin, I mean, Abraham Lincoln uh, to uh, finance the Civil War. And uh, why didn't they want to talk about that? Uh, there's another thing. When you look a little bit further. <laughs> That's they, a great uh, question. Yeah. You know, why did, why did Abraham Lincoln uh, want to print the greenbacks in the basement of the White House? Uh-huh. Why didn't he want to pay the bankers 20%, the bankers that financed both sides of that war? No, or, or, yeah, more. So, or more. Or <laughs> more, right. Yeah. It was... Uh, uh, another aspect, once you get into the book, uh, one of the first periods they cover, 1870s, and uh, they discuss in some detail that uh, from 1871-72 to 1879 uh, was the uh, longest period of economic contraction in the history of the United States. Uh, they call it longer than the Great Depression. But um, uh, nevertheless, they assiduously did not mention what the clear cause of that contraction was. It was a statutorily imposed deflation of the dollar enacted in something like 1872. I don't have the exact date of the statute in mind, but Congress uh, passed a law deciding, as was demanded by the monetary powers, that would have been the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and the central banks, uh, that the dollar go back to the pre-Civil War value so far as uh, gold was concerned. That it'd be a gold-backed dollar and that it'd be back at $20.67 an ounce. Now, during the Civil War, but thanks to the greenbacks, there had been something like 50% inflation uh, during that uh, short period of time the greenbacks were in circulation. And so uh, that's substantial. Uh, and when you are going back to the same level as before the Civil War and the greenbacks, that means you're going to have a 50% deflation. And that's exactly what happened during those uh, years of the 1870s. Uh, because it said by 1879, uh, the, the dollar would again be valued and exchangeable for gold at the rate of $20.67 an ounce. So the statute put into effect a clear deflation uh, that was not mentioned uh, by a monetary history of the United States. Uh, they talked about it in detail, that it was a sharp, severe, uh, damaging deflation, and never attributed it to the statute. Uh, it seems to me that it's a very suspect thing for economists to do simply of their own accord. Now, um, I think they more or less alibied for it by the way they defined what they were examining. They had a very uh, technical uh, expression or definition 
of what they were tracking so they could supposedly stay on course and not be diverted into other topic areas. But it was a monetary quantity or something of the sort definition that gave them an excuse for not talking about that. But it seemed to me it's just a glaring example that there are things here that are off limits. They, they can't talk about and don't want talked about. And uh, so they go on and uh, uh, they get uh, to other periods, other periods of uh, uh, the uh, 19 teens after the Fed, uh, the uh, uh, inflation we had then when the, the gold standard was suspended, gold shipments from the U.S. to other countries was, were suspended. And um, that happened in the, in the 1917-1918 period. And uh, so there was a, another sharp inflation then uh, when the gold standard was suspended. And then that had to be or was deflated in the early 1920s with a sharp uh, uh, recession. And um, all of that, again, was uh, avoided. And uh, there is a clear statement in that monetary history of the United States that during those eight first eight years of Franklin Roosevelt, they even given ounces the number of ounces of gold by which the U.S. Treasury gold supply increased during those eight years. And as I say, re reflect in my book, uh, it's, it's well more than triple the amount of gold in the Treasury acquired in those eight years. They do not speak about where the money came from. They do not speak about its effect on the economy. Now, uh, how can you do that and be an interested economist when you're talking about a monetary history and its effects on the country? Uh, it just seems to me that uh, after seeing that, that uh, handling or uh, refusing to touch the subject in that very important book that put Dr. Friedman on the map. Right. Uh, full professorship, revered economist at the University of Chicago, and so forth. Um, uh, it seems to me that uh, that is a very troublesome thing in terms of um, my evaluation of uh, his role and uh, how much more effective and beneficial he might have been if he had entered the waters of those, that subject this and seems really a little, made clear uh, what the problem was. Yeah, I, I mean, it just seems a little bit nefarious. <clears throat> you write a book, then it's very, you know, um, very defined on your intent so you can avoid uh, some truth and some real history. And then, and then you're put on the map. I mean, that's, what a coincidence. You know, that's yeah. pretty convenient. And, uh, you know, I think... Uh, when I think of Milton Friedman, and I know who he was, and I don't know all of his work, but, you know, when he talks about I pencil, Leonard Reed's work about the economics of a pencil, number two pencil, um, 
You know, I think that's some of his better work, and he's reciting the work of Leonard E. Reed. I digress. Um, but two, wasn't it? Anna Schwartz uh, and uh, Friedman, weren't they, you know, quite cozy with Ann Rand and uh, Alan Greenspan? And, and I'm bringing that up because I think it's around there, 1966 or so, that Alan Greenspan wrote about the wonderful benefits and attributes of gold and the gold standard. Then you carry his career forward, and look what he did. And I know I don't want to get ahead of us, but um, I think that paper was published around that time, 66, somewhere around there. And, and and that a coincidence, you you know, you have a position on gold as a young economist, and then as your career advances, and you become like put on the map, and and then your whole narrative changes. Um, well, uh, good points you make, I, and I want to say that I I certainly don't want to necessarily single Milton Friedman out. I do so largely because he's one of the people, one of the economists that I've admired over the years. Sure. And followed his work and uh, supported uh, a number of his ideas, smaller government and so forth. But, um, I mean, look at John Kenneth Galbraith, supposedly the Harvard uh, uh, master of economics, uh, the, the one writing um, giant volumes about the Great Depression, and yet he never explains what caused it. Right. Um, lots of, uh, you know, filler information about the details of this and that, and uh, here's what happened and so forth and so on, but never really getting to uh, here's the activity, here's what really uh, put the screws on and why we had it more severe here than any place in the world and uh, so forth. You know, and the same course. can be said about most of the academics and the academicians that write, that write about FDR. And I know that this has probably come up in, in our previous conversations, but they're such glowing. He's a hero. And, and oh, my gosh, the the uh, everything that he did took us out of the uh, uh, Great Depression when, in fact, everything he did caused the the depression or caused it to be more or worse um, or impunitive to the all-American family. I mean, you don't really hear, it's very difficult to find the truth about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Yes, and, I think you come closer to it in my book, The Fruits of Graft, than any place else. No question, uh, hands down, no uh, question. I, uh, uh, there, there is so much uh, to be related about that that we, uh, we can't go into uh, at this moment. And, of course, sure. I've given some time to it in the past. But nevertheless, that was the situation uh, of that important book uh, that uh, supposedly was the, uh, the bridge, we'll say, through the troubled waters of Bretton Woods, uh, getting us into what we ought to do about monetary policy. Uh, his, his, uh, uh, Dr. Friedman's view about monetary policy is that we ought to be controlling uh, and uh, regulating the, the quantities of money produced uh, as the means of uh, avoiding inflation. And of course, uh, those views essentially were not followed uh, during the time of his uh, 
primary influence uh, in economics, the Keynes went right on ahead with with their approach uh, toward uh, money management. And uh, that gets us to the uh, Camp David Accords of 1971, in which uh, the gold window to foreign central banks was closed, announced by uh, uh, President Nixon. And as I said, uh, with uh, Paul Volcker from Chase Manhattan Bank uh, at his side uh, to uh, uh, make that announcement. And uh, at the same time, the same day, they announce the closing of the gold window. They announced the cost of living council and price wage controls to fight that devil called inflation. Uh, that they knew they were loosing on the world and uh, the American public at exactly the same day. Uh, because uh, uh, surely they knew that the dollar had already lost value during the period of Bretton Woods and that uh, inflation was going to jump like a horse out of the starting gate. Uh, and uh, therefore, they wanted to have something on it. Uh, and of course, what did they have on it? They had basically collars on the working people, uh, putting them on chains so that they just had to pull harder and harder with that thing around their necks, uh, called the dollar getting uh, less valuable, prices getting higher, um, wages not nearly uh, keeping up with it, and partly because the government was not allowing wages to keep up with it. So, uh, in effect, we have additional Keynesian policy that is not by any means designed to be favorable to the working man and woman. Uh, to the contrary, <laughs> exactly the opposite. It's uh, intended to tie down the middle class producer uh, and to put them subject to government control uh, while those uh, who benefit from the financial system that is owned by the private Rothschild banks that uh, has paper currency as of uh, 1972, uh, the dollar's value was cut completely away from gold and it was going to float on the open market and be determined by whatever the public was willing to pay for it in uh, relation to other currencies around the world. So we had a floating dollar completely divorced from gold. Um, only uh, uh, what, uh, 40 years after uh, Roosevelt took office. Uh, and he took office uh, 20 years after the, uh, after the Fed was formed. Uh, with uh, many people to this day Actually, they were more, much more aware of it back when it was formed. There were many very knowledgeable people. The public was much more knowledgeable about monetary policy and uh, what that central bank was all about. There were articulate politicians who were strongly opposed to it and stayed opposed to it for decades after the Fed was uh, brought in the... Um, as surreptitiously as it was at Christmas of 1913 and signed into law by Wilson when he had promised not to do so uh, to get elected. Uh, but in any event, uh, 
so here we uh, get to 1971-72. We have a gold price that has uh, basically quadrupled in about 18 months. Uh, We have wage price controls, and we have inflation taking off, uh, as we say. And we go through the um, 1970s with that kind of uh, affliction getting worse by the day with politics uh, developing around uh, how to make it better for the working man when it by no means uh, was going to help to have wage price controls or little stickers on your car uh, or on your lapel saying whip inflation now. Uh, uh, really ridiculous, juvenile kinds of approaches toward uh, politics. Uh, but uh, we get to a point then of 1979, and we have, guess who, becoming chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. That Volker. would be Paul Volcker. <laughs> uh, in 1979, as I recall, and... Uh, of course, the, again, from Chase Manhattan Bank, we have uh, Gerald Ford in the White House. Um, and uh, we have a, a nomination, however, that is uh, going to uh, Ronald Reagan from the Republicans, looks like. And uh, Paul Volcker comes in, and apparently, it would seem to me, that his purpose in replacing the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board was to get Jimmy Carter reelected. Uh, it was actually Jimmy Carter in the White House by then. Uh, Gerald Ford had been uh, defeated in 76, I misspoke. But uh, uh, so what did Paul Volcker do? He comes in and he's supposedly going to Uh, put into effect Milton Friedman's view of monetary policy. Uh, He's going to start managing money quantities and the amount of of money quantities put into the economy as a means of controlling inflation. Now, another way of stating that was that he didn't want to uh, take the responsibility of high interest rates And so basically, instead of managing interest rates at the Fed, he said, we're going to manage uh, inflation with money quantities. And so he he gets into the chairmanship in about October of 78. And what does he do? He immediately dumps in quite a lot of quantities of money, (laughs) um, making it uh, uh, with the idea, I believe, of making the economy boom in such a way that uh, Jimmy Carter would be reelected. And uh, what happens, uh, he was supposedly put in because the gold price was going up and it was something like $272 an ounce or thereabouts. I, I may be uh, misremembering exactly the amount or the, or the price when he uh, came to the Fed chairmanship. But um, by uh, the next year, 1980, He uh, saw the gold price. Uh, I mean, he was put in partly because the gold price looked like it was really going up, uh, a harbinger of a greater inflation. 
And uh, by the middle of 1980, the presidential election year, uh, it had hit $892 an ounce. Uh, and uh, along with it, interest rates were uh, well into double digits, uh, unprecedented. And uh, talk about an economic calamity. Uh, that uh, was, um, oh, by the way, uh, he had been straight from Chase Manhattan when he advised uh, Nixon in, in uh, closing the gold window. Well, he went back to Chase Manhattan in the meantime before he <laughs> came back. So we're talking about a Rockefeller Rothschild guy, and yet uh, who was given the uh, so, so-called credit for breaking the back of inflation? Yeah. Um, our, our press and academicians and so forth seem to find a way to do that by giving Paul Volcker the credit. Uh, nevertheless, that gets us into the period of the 1980s. Uh, I think that uh, that may be, I'm not sure how our time is going at this point, but it may be uh, a good time to uh, pause for any questions you may have or, or some clarification you'd like to uh, provide. But that yeah. is um, a history of that period of time that sort of brings us up into the, the, the post-80s period. I, I think that was very good, and uh, we're we're right at about thirty the thirty minute mark, and and I would just say that there's nothing new under the sun. You know, these people come out of government into the banking system, out of the banking system. You look around the world, all the central banks, uh, presidents, and the EU, the uh, different prime ministers and foreign ministers from around the country. It, it's uh, I I just call it a uh, it's an incestuous cesspool from Wall Street, the banks, the cabal. They move in and out of governments around the world continuously. Um, and I don't want to be necessarily political, but um, it was nice to see an outsider become president in 2016. And, oh, you look up and the first thing that the that that happens is that all the neocons are filling all the the uh, the uh, positions around the president with insiders. So Steve, I don't remember the guy's name, Mnuchin. Mnuchin. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean Mnuchin. You know, he's a Goldman Sachs guy from from way back, and and you can really go through the cabinet. I'm just saying. Uh, this well, current- I say uh, that uh, sort of to put a, a lid on this thing, uh, <laughs> we are certainly at a momentous time in history as of 2020 yeah. uh, in terms of the, uh, well, say called history of the Fed, because it's possible as we sit here speaking that the Fed is history even as we speak. Um, it, Man, uh, I hope I hope you're right. I sincerely yeah. hope that that is the case. We'll right. leave that discussion for another day, but uh, <laughs> there's a lot to discuss about it. And uh, uh, in understanding what is going on, uh, it's most important uh, to consider the things we've talked about this morning, where we've come from. We don't want to go back that trail again. Uh, we don't want to... Uh, be led into the same kind of retracing and repeat repetition of this fiat currency uh, 
that uh, to this day, uh, all of the wise, great uh, professors of economics uh, from these elitist universities are insisting that Keynesianism is the only respectable uh, approach to economics when it is uh, a complete sellout to the mercantilist, uh, globalist cabal that wants a one world government uh, and wants us all um, either liquidated or uh, slaving for them. So we'll leave it at that. And uh, thank you again for having me this morning. Perfect. James. I, I appreciate you. It's fun as always. Have a great day. And I look forward to the next time we sit down and talk. Wayne. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.